Hello everyone, welcome to Bright Garden Voices Garden Chat number three. I am Leila Emily, one of the collaborators at Bright Garden Voices. And please stay tuned for a few minutes until our guests join us and we can start our meeting. Uh, our guests to join. Perfect. Hello, Timur. Welcome. And, good evening. Uh, good evening. And thank you uh, for accepting our, uh, to joining our meeting. And before we jump to the questions, I will just uh, give a brief introduction about you. And then later on, you can add your own comments if you wish, of course. So our guest today is Timur Nersesov. He is an originally an Armenian from Baku. And his undergraduate degree uh, is from cultural anthropology uh, from the University of Michigan. So Timur's current work uh, focuses on the cloud technologies and artificial intelligence applications in the U.S. government. And uh, for the record, he also finished his master's of science degree in analytics. And he holds also, he's a member of the Truman National Security Project. And Timur has um, experience of over 15 years as an officer in the United States Army and over 10 years as a policy and technology consultant to the U.S. Departments of Defense, State and Homeland Security. And today he will share his own experiences of leaving Azerbaijan as a child and his perspective as an also a U.S. Army major veteran and a refugee on the conflict between the, both countries, Azerbaijan and Armenia. And for the record, uh, Timur Nersesov is not representing an official position of the U.S. government. Everything he says is own personal opinions only, as well as everything I say is only my own personal opinion. It does not represent any side. So, Timur, if you would like to uh, add some more points to your background, or if you would like to make some comments before we jump to the questions, please. Uh, no, that's very, very comprehensive. <laughs> that's <laughs> Thank, <covered> you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so uh, for our uh, guests, uh, you can, if you have any questions or comments, you can just write them to the comments section or just uh, type it to the question box. At the end, we will come back to this and unless it's a follow-up questions. Um, so, and uh, for those who misses uh, some points in the discussion, do not worry because the live will be published and it is recorded. So, Timur, if you are ready, we can jump to the questions. Yeah, let's do it. Perfect. Thank you. So, can you tell us first a bit about yourself and your family's background and how do you and your family members remember Baku? So, yeah, so I'm actually third generation. So I was the third generation of my family born in Baku. So uh, my family started uh, arriving in Baku from with my great grandparents. Uh, so right around 1910s to 1920. By 1920, I think everyone was already in the city. And they came from all over. I have, uh, uh, I count, counted once, uh, I have a great grandfather from Ganja, from Karabakh, from Van in Turkey from Goris in Armenia and then uh, in Sivan in Armenia. So it's it kind of covered a, a lot of ground. They all kind yeah. of met in Baku. Um, so I was third generation born. Um, and uh, we, uh, so I mean, my memories of Baku, uh, I was only eight. Yeah, eight when I left. Um, 
so they're you know they're a child's memories the um and from my parents and my grandparents and their understanding of the city you know the, the city um at least in the soviet period was very cosmopolitan i think between the uh late 1800s up until basically 1988 it was somewhere between like a quarter a little over a quarter to a little under a fifth armenian and then you know about the same russians and then the rest of the azerbaijanis so it's a very cosmopolitan city very uh, you know a resort city and a rapidly growing city so uh, we actually settled in one of the areas um north east yeah northeast of the city <laughs> uh, where my father my grandfather great grandfather built the the house that i grew up in Wow. Um, which, uh, yeah, which was one of those like expansion spots. So, I mean, for, for us, Baku is uh, kind of a very nostalgic and very much a home that exists in memory, um, but it's not a real place anymore because we don't have any contact with it. Yeah, I yeah. see. Thank you. Thank you for such a, a expansive answer. And it's really interesting to hear an, another perspective uh, of Baku, those nostalgic feelings. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So as for the next question, um, can you describe the circumstances back then uh, and the experience of leaving Baku? How did you felt? You said you were eight years old. If you mm -hmm. can describe your feelings or even your parents' feelings and experiences, how it happened? So we left, so I personally left and my parents, and my sister, so the, the four of us left um, in December of 88. So before the, you know, Black January and everything else in 90, so a year later. And it's essentially as the events of Karabakh had been like unraveling for the previous year. Um, and uh, I think my parents expected it to, on the one hand, to just wait out the trouble and come back. So we didn't leave with much um, uh, initially. But then as the situation got worse, we just never came back. Um, and we left. Uh, we were the first, one of the first ones in our family to leave. Um, my parents were, uh, you have to understand kind of in, in a lot of Armenian families, any, there's a lot of lore and history and um, uh, sensitivity whenever it comes to any kind of ethnic tension. So as stuff was starting to build up, people were like, well, okay, is this going to get as bad as the story say it can get? So people made a choice, right? They're like, well, you know, maybe I don't want to be here right now and I have the freedom to go do that, or I'm going to wait it out and see what happens. So <clears throat> we left, like I said, uh, at the end of 88. And then the rest of our family, which we were over, I think close to a hundred people between my, all my cousins and so on, in Baku, from Baku, uh, started to come essentially after Black January. And, and, every, and essentially by within a year and a half, the, there was nobody left there. Um, and we went to Moscow first and then um, stayed with my uncle, who happened to be uh, in the Soviet Army at the time. So he was actually based in Moscow. So we said, oh, you know, we're going to crash with him. But then as it became clear we weren't going back, um, the Soviet Union had uh, residency rules. So you couldn't stay in a city you weren't from unless you were on official business for X number of days. Um, it, was, it was called prapiska. <laughs> so yeah. uh, we can switch to Russian for stuff if it makes more sense uh, on occasion. Yeah. Uh, but um, so we had to start moving. So over the next two years, we moved every few months um, uh, to wherever basically we could get uh, 
kind of around Moscow, outside of Moscow and Tver and back to Moscow and outside. So we just did that for a while until my father successfully got, um, got permission to emigrate to the U.S. And he applied to three different places. He, he and three friends, well, the three, of, three friends, my father and his two friends, each applied to Spain, Israel, and the U.S., we got the U.S. One of them got Spain. The other one got Israel. So we all went, <laughs> we all, we all went to the wind. Um, and then we ended up in Los Angeles in the U.S. Good. Met Thank you. That's a, that's a really uh, interesting story, I would say. It must have been challenging, you know, moving one's place, one's home. It's always difficult and challenging. And uh, But I'm glad that you've been able to get the permission to enter the United States. Yeah. And um, for the next question, um, we'd like to ask, uh, what has your journey been like, like growing outside of your native city, like Baku? And what was your experience in the United States been like? Was it challenging? Was it appealing? Or was it fun? I mean, yeah, w once we were in the U.S., you know, after the first two, three years when, you know, language, my, both of my parents were engineers in Baku, right? They, they were educated. And so it took, as soon as they got language down and had their degrees recognized in the U.S., they could kind of normalize in the U.S. And so um, after the first three, four years of doing the whole refugee welfare thing in the U.S., while we kind of figuring things out, um, we essentially became a normal American suburban family and moved out of Los Angeles and moved around the country for work. So it's funny because in the, until I left Baku, and I like to say this, uh, uh, people like me, so my generation who were born in big cities, especially cosmopolitan cities like Baku, like, you know, if you look at Yerevan or Tbilisi, uh, versus Baku. Baku was the most diverse of all of them in terms of just identity and who, who was there. Um, I was not very conscious of the fact that I was Armenian. Like, it wasn't a big item. Um, you know, I spoke Russian at home. I didn't speak Armenian at home. And even today, my Armenian is atrocious. Um, and, um, and even though I, you know, I wasn't mixed or anything, it just I was becoming like my generation, maybe the generation of my children had the Soviet Union existed, we would have been the first true kind of Soviet generation, right? People who were, who had no living memory of a time before the Soviet Union. And even the people that were telling them stories about the time before were also one or two generations removed, right? So we would have no frame of reference. So when we moved and all of a sudden we're in LA now, you know, well, first two years in Russia and that didn't really have any effect. Um, you're just kind of, get moved five times in first grade alone you know, just, just between every two months like oh, nope, we have to move now <laughs> and uh living in random places um so in la i started to become very aware that i was Armenian, and so then my consciousness of it changed a, a, a little bit um i um uh how do i describe it 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 was clear that you were part of the diaspora now, right? Like th there was an identity of being an Armenian outside of the homeland that was in, in its own and established, right? It's multi-generation old here too. It's not like there was not one wave. There are Armenians in the U.S., the diaspora in the U.S., France, Argentina, and Russia. I mean, it's, you know, 
150 years old at this point or close, you know, well, maybe not that much between 100 and 150 years old. So there are people who are Armenians who are born in the U.S. who are fourth, fifth generation Americans, but are all, you know, but they still maintain the Armenian identity. So now it became like you're uh, being an Armenian from Baku didn't matter anymore because there weren't that many of us to begin with, um, you know, a few hundred thousand but spread across the world. So there are not many places where we actually congregated and be like, oh, you're like one of me. It's like, no, you're one of us in the big picture of being Armenian, but now you're in this new context. Um, so it was different. It was, it, it was switched and being from Baku became unimportant. It, it didn't matter any because no one really, sh- you know, you might meet a pe- people here and there, but it didn't really matter to the identity anymore. I see. Thank you again for, for, for such a brilliant answer. It's really nice to hear your experiences. And before we jump to the next question, just for the record, uh, for those who joined us, our guest is Timur Nersesov, and he's talking about his own experience of living Baku and living adjusting to the United States and his perspective on the conflict. And if you have missed some part of the live, please don't worry because it's recorded and it will be posted in our Instagram page. So now for the uh, next question. Actually, you kind of um, answered um, to this question because our next question is, is your and your family's Uh, background from Baku is still a big part of your identity, but you touched on that topic, yeah. actually, and you answered yeah. it. But if you would like to add something more, please. It, it's, um, yeah, it, I mean, it's, it only comes up in kind of nostalgic settings. We have some friends too, like family friends who are not necessarily Armenians, but are from Baku as well. Um, uh, mostly Russians. Um, and, um, So there's, there's some sense of you're from the same place, but I will say it's like, it, it's almost like a dream world. It's a, it's a different world uh, that is completely inaccessible um, and doesn't exist anymore, right? The Baku of the late eighties and the mixture and the, uh, of the population, the people there is just not the same city as far as I know that it is today. Uh, the character of the city changed as it grew and as the, the demographics changed. So it, it's very difficult to say, like our, our attachment to Baku is that city. The current city is alien to us. It's foreign. Um, it, it, we don't, and we're, we've never been there. So we don't know, you know how to, what it would mean to be there. Right. I, I know like every once in a while I'd hear, um, you know, people that I know would go to Baku and they would tell me like the state of the house I grew up in or, you know, the, the neighborhood I grew up in and how it keeps changing. And like, it's not even called what it was called back then. Right. When I grew up in, it was called Baroski Rayon. Like, and now it's, I don't know what it is. <laughs> like, uh, I know the house is still there. They're like, Oh yeah, we drove by and there's a third floor to it now. And it's great now. Whoever lives there. Great. And it's funny because um, that was of all the, you know, families that you know, my family extended family that lived in Baku in several of the uh, neighborhoods our house was the only one we actually got to sell like the house I grew up in so my grandmother was was able to sell that house all the others were just kind of left um so she had got a chance to sell it and she sold it to Azerbaijanis who came from Armenia in 1991 who themselves didn't really speak good Azeri, so they, she spoke to them in Armenian and, and sold them the house. 
which you know the irony is not lost on anyone um but um but yeah so i I, you know and i know the neighbors have changed and it's you know it's been 32 years since i've been there so wow yeah yeah i understand nice points you have made and so the change happens and it's been 30 years now so it's understandable that the city you know have changed completely and it's it's it makes sense that it feels alien to you mm-hmm. so um for the next question um we know that actually forgot to mention in the beginning that you are a veteran of the Iraq war so how has your experience in being a combat in the battlefield and, and has shaped your views about war and specifically uh how it affected your thoughts during the recent Nagorno-Karabakh war and as a former soldier yourself so um it's a lot of topics in that question um <laughs> so in terms of the military and you know I joined the military to be a soldier and my family actually might with the exception of my father from World War One and the revolution on, we're all military, essentially. So I grew up kind of like expecting I'll be a soldier. Mm. So in the U.S., I, I became one. Um, and I specifically chose um, a combat specialty. So I, I was in tanks and battlefield reconnaissance. And, you know, I was like, yep, I'm, if I'm going to do the army, I'm going to do the most army thing there is to do in the army. <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, and then I deployed to Iraq, of course, uh, like you mentioned, uh, where I got to lead troops in the field. And, I mean, it's... Um, War is a thing that is a tool. It is used to get results. Um, force works. Uh, it has, you know, all of history. So um, I don't really have a very strong opinion on war per se, like on, on the idea of war. Uh, I have very strong opinions on how it's waged, right? Why you do it, how you do it, when you do it. Um, but the fact that it exists is it's okay. <laughs> it's always been there. And so you always have to have a class within every society that is able to do it because, uh, and to, to function as soldiers, because if you don't, the people that do will tend to win. So that, that's the general, very simple logic of it. So uh, when the war kicked off last year, Number one, it was predictable. Um, uh, if you follow at all any, you know, international security and global issues, um, when you see certain trend lines and investments and armaments and and alliances shifting and different power bases shifting, you can start predicting and saying, you know, I don't know 100% that's going to happen, but it's more likely now than it was, let's say, five years ago. Um, so when the war kicked off, although it was a surprise, it wasn't actually that surprising to me. Like, it was like, oh, well, eh, makes sense. Um, I mean, there were surprising aspects to it, right? The, uh, um, the use of drones, for example, right? That, that was a big topic during the war. Um, I mean, the U.S. Army has used them for, you know, 20 years. But I used them 10 years ago in Iraq. Um, but um, it's the way they were used has actually become very interesting even to us like us, not Armenians, but like the U.S. Army, like we're looking at the conflict now even. And there's even actually a podcast I listen to 
a few weeks ago on the subject of just what happened in the last week of the war, because it was so interesting from, from like the technical aspects, but in terms of how it all played out, um, it was kind of the expected result. Like if, like I said, if you follow the trends where the money was spent, what was bought by whom, who was involved, the outcome could have only changed if other people became involved. And obviously that didn't happen. So yeah. it's a very broad answer to a very broad question. <laughs> there's a lot there. Um, yeah, of course. And it's, it's a topic that cannot be fit to just a one hour life. So understandable. Mm-hmm. Um, again, thank you so much uh, for, the, for such an answer. And uh, our next question is about your Azerbaijani friends. Have you had any Azerbaijan friends or do you have any current interaction with Azerbaijanis after leaving Baku? And if you have any, can you please tell us about these interactions and connections? Um, so the answer is yes. Uh, <laughs> um, so I have very rarely had an issue with Azerbaijanis outside of well, I've never been to Azerbaijan as an adult, so I don't know what that would be like. But with a very few, very specific exceptions, I've had a couple of unpleasant encounters. Um, I still, to this day, have close friends who are Azerbaijanis. They were Azerbaijanis at my wedding. That was very Armenian. Um, I used to have an, a, a, a lady, uh, when I lived in New York um, years ago, my landlord was an Azerbaijani lady from Baku. Um, and got along great with her, um, you know, met her sons. And it, it, so in reality here in the U S um, and broadly, like I have Turkish friends, Kurdish friends, um, close friends. Um, this is not really an issue. Like honestly, the most negative interactions I have with, except with a couple of in-person interactions, that, w- that do stand out, but only like as exceptions that prove the rule, all the negativity I've ever experienced in sort of interacting with Azerbaijanis has been on Twitter. Like <laughs> that's, that's basically <laughs> all the drama is, is Twitter. Um, and, and when I have conversations about any of these issues with my Azerbaijani friends or Turkish friends, we have disagreements, right? We have different points of view. Um, and the tone of those arguments is not, what it is on Twitter, for example, right? Or what it is in public. Uh, the tone of those arguments, and a lot of us are educated, we're, you know, uh, and outside of, you know, in the West or, uh, or in Turkey. And so there's a lot that we're bringing to the table, but the topics around all of those relationships are so dense and complicated. <laughs> and what makes like Twitter somewhat fun and also annoying is that 99% of the time in like public arguments, you're not dealing the people actually interacting don't actually know much about the topic. They know talking points. They know things they've learned in school, right? School, I mean, not formal education, but like elementary, middle school, high school, whatever. Um, and they simply, like Armenian or, or Azeri, in, in many ways can't have a, uh, a very sophisticated discussion on this. And whenever a sophisticated discussion is attempted, it can't really happen in public. Um, as far as I can tell, um, it, it will be co-opted very quickly. So there are a lot of sophisticated conversations happening in private, um, but between people that don't matter to the actual outcome of anything. 
right? <laughs> These aren't people that are living in Armenia or Azerbaijan who are participating in, in government, who are, who are uh, making decisions, you know, who are known figures and who influence things. We have our opinions and we influence things, but indirectly. And most of the time, just make sure we're good between each other. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I definitely yeah. agree on that. And unfortunately, when, especially on social media and Twitter can be a tough place sometimes. So when people try to make uh, arguments that make sense, unfortunately for most people, the emotions got on the way and just things get messed up and that's it. Um, so yeah, thank you. Thank you for, for your answers. Thank you for the expansive answers to all our questions. And uh, I can see that uh, some new people have joined us. Welcome. So it's our garden chat number three with Timur Nersasov. Uh, he was sharing his own personal experiences uh, regarding Baku and the United States and on the recent conflict. So for those who have joined us, again, it's safe to remind that uh, if you have missed it, please don't worry. It's recorded and it will be on our Instagram page. And now if you have any questions to our guests, uh, please write them to the comment box or the question box. You can see on your screen. Um, I'm sure that he would be very pleased to answer the questions. So yeah, uh, if you have any questions, you can just type it or any comments. It does not need to be a question per se. Oh, quiet chat today. <laughs> so maybe Timur, you have something else, some comments to make. I really enjoyed our chat today and I hope that it will not be the last. And I hope that you will also be on our next chats as a guest, as a participant, as a listener, because I really enjoyed uh, this dialogue and I hope that you also did. And I hope that our guests also enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, no, this has been a very good conversation. And I, I will say the the one thing that is the most important um, for dialogues in general. Um, you know, this is true no matter if you're, you know, the Armenian-Azeri conflict or any conflict. Um, a lot of our narratives and therefore the emotions that are tied to it are based on essentially half histories. They're not based on, you know, fully fleshed out histories. And, you know, there are reasons for that. There are lots of reasons that are very easily explainable for that the problem is when you're having a conversation your starting points matter right um if i genuinely have a different version of events than you did in the, and we, as we start the conversation we have we have such a big gulf between us that we will never get to anything of substance um you know and that's mostly what happens the conversation starts somebody makes a point and somebody starts to counter and um it's all of a sudden you actually never get to actually the substantive side of things because you get stuck in, well, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. But about facts. And there, so there's a lot of noise and a lot of muddled history that is very difficult for people to accept when it conflicts with their version of reality. Right. So in, in essence, like even if you look at Baku specifically, just Baku, uh, it went from a town of like a few thousand people in the mid 1800s 
you know, an oil is discovered, you know, it becomes one the first place of oil growth in the world. Basically the oil industry is born there for all practical purposes in terms of the Middle East, not just petroleum in general. And its entire growth from that period to 1991 included a huge proportion of Armenians, which means the Armenian influence and character on the city was unavoidable, whether it was churches, whether it was place names, whether it was architects, buildings, whatever the case may be. Even the culture of Baku specifically, like music and um, uh, there were there were a couple styles of music. I don't know if they're, I forget what they're called. It was basically almost like um, Caucasus style Russian language thing that was done in Baku specifically. Like Boka was one of the like n- known guys that it's very much a mixed, um, a mixed culture, right? So in the city, that city specifically, as opposed to the countryside of Azerbaijan, the countryside of Armenia, you had something going on that was fairly, you know, maybe something like it existed in Belize, maybe, because it, it, it also was kind of cosmopolitan. Um, and the, the fact that over the previous 100 years, what we've actually done in the Caucasus in general is sort ourselves out. Meaning like, you know, you look at <laughs> the Caucasus, beginning of the Russian Empire, so right when Russia shows up, People are kind of spread out. You know, there are Azerbaijanis like this and Armenians like this and Georgians like this and like all the others in between. And it's a mixture. And then we spent a hundred years concentrating and all of a sudden pretending like those places were always pure when they weren't. And now we have these narratives about, about you know, which are basically ownership narratives. And but we're starting with completely weird histories. So anyway, that, that to me that's the biggest obstacle. Until there are people that are willing to have conversations about history and understand, at least agree on some fundamentals of events, not why they happened, not how they happened, not whether they were right or wrong, but just what actually happened, you're going to have a huge struggle uh, unless there's like a desire to reconcile which I don't think there is. I don't actually think there is, on average, a desire to reconcile that can be that people can latch onto and say, like, oh, well, let's just let's just be good. Like, forget we're, we're too mixed up on the past. Can we just be good going forward? Um, that 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 sentiment isn't there. Um, so, yeah, I would definitely agree with that statement of yours. That I also uh, think that there's. Well, for now, there is no intention of reconciliation, and but hope that it would happen in future because it needs to happen since there is no escape, and you know for for things to get better, we need that uh, conversation and dialogue between us. So I think we have a um, question in the comment box, like from Armine. Um, she asks, "Have you become less or more optimistic about possible?" Azerbaijan-Armenian dialogue after the war, but you kind of also touched uh, that in your answer. I mean, answer. less would be the general, the general answer, but... Yeah. Um, and Turhan has a comment saying that peace has to be the weapon of the two nations. You are right. And um, we have a question box and a question. 
Uh, it's from Arnold. Someone called Armine asked if he's more or less that. Yes, we touched upon on that question. Um, so we can still uh, receive a few more questions if you have any. Um, because I, I think the duration... I think, um, oh. one, one comment is that someone is writing a question. Oh. Um, I don't see any more questions on the question box it's just only Arnold's comment and um, but why I can't see the questions unfortunately I can't see the question I only see Arnold's comment and that's it ah yes it's from Diego uh, he's one of the co-directors of uh, the Bright Garden Voices so he asked do you have any childhood friends from Baku? He also... Uh, yeah, yes, actually, I mean, the short answer is yes. Um, but they're basically my parent, you know, the children of my parents' friends, the kids I grew up with, but none of them live in Azerbaijan. So um, they, we all left, Whether and some of them aren't Armenian, uh, but they, they left at the same time. Nobody really wanted to be a party of what was going on. Yeah, I understand. So... Also, Andrea has a question. She is also one of the collaborators at Bright Garden Voices. So she asks, although we see war throughout history, we can agree it creates damage, pain, and suffering. And what kind of advice would you give younger generations about war? And what kind uh, of advice uh, would you give to prevent the spread of hate during a war and post-war? So, hmm, all right. So here's my opinion on, on war in general. Um, you can't avoid it. As it's, there's not going to be a time when it doesn't exist. Uh, so long as there is a, uh, even if there is a, uh, you know, one global government, right? Not many countries, forget 190, but like, let's say even fewer. Um, when there is an opportunity to get a policy outcome and war becomes a cheaper option for whatever reason, there is nothing to stop a state from using it, right? So if you think about the United Nations, for example, right, post-World War II, was supposed to bring people together to prevent war, blah, blah. Really, the main job was to prevent nuclear war. Like, it, the charter says a lot, but its real job was to give the nuclear powers a place to vent and agree on things. Wars still happened aplenty. In, the, in you know post that period, but they were capped at seriousness. There was a level beyond which they couldn't go because there was this organization that absorbed those types of disagreements. Um, so you have to recognize that given the opportunity, given the resources, a state will consider war as an option. And if they have support, if they have, or innate power, right? Um, uh, they can do it and not be stopped. So in essence, the only way to prevent war is to stop them when they start. And the belligerents aren't going to be the people that are stopping it. It has to be a external pressure that stops them because there's just too much usefulness in a war that you win. So preventing this, the war, it's war in general, I think is kind of a fool's errand. You have to understand, like, 
global politics basically to to be okay with understanding like how these things play out um hate on the other hand though is a completely different question and and you know the the spreading of hate the spreading of all of that is a choice none of that is natural um the and once people are in you, know, you can see it in the u.s with all our politics you can see it in the caucuses in general you can see it in turkey you can see it in the, plenty of places hate speech and hate like has to be drummed up it has to have energy behind it and resources behind it it doesn't happen just because um which means that it can be stopped it can be called out it can be um um, it can be basically um, attacked in and of itself, right? Um, uh, this is like on Twitter in particular is kind of the entertaining part. When um, when people start the conversations and you clearly know like exactly the talking points they're about to present and you know exactly where those talking points are coming from, um, you can very quickly figure out what the, you know, uh, what story is being pushed that this person is not coming up with this based on their own thoughts and analysis. I mean, they're parroting essentially something they heard. And frankly, on something as complicated as multinational relations and history, most people have not a lick of background to have like an intelligent discussion about it and contribute something new without studying it. Like you just can't, you just don't know the things that you need to be to know to have that conversation. Um, so when they start jumping in and start throwing facts out, you're like, okay, well, I know the depth of your knowledge here is not going to be very deep. So I can just to see how belligerent you are. Maybe I'll, I'll participate for entertainment or not. Um, so hate can be done something about, um, it, it is a choice. War is a choice too, but it is, there's a lot of utility in it and you're not going to get, get around that one. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you for the detailed answer. We have one more question from the question box. Um, if we can't avoid war, what is the point of conflict resolution? Dialogue, negotiations, etc. Then, I didn't say, yeah. So I don't want to make the impression that you can't avoid war. You can definitely avoid war if you do the conflict resolution, if you do the escalation. But every party involved, either one has to believe that that is a better choice, and two, if they don't believe it have someone more powerful than them making them do it, right? So it's, the problem is that, it's not like you can't avoid war, is that war has utility. It has a usefulness. It has a cost and a usefulness. And so there's conflict resolution. And, you know, not to make, like, oversimplify it, I'm oversimplifying for the purpose of argument here, it's some kind of like economics. You do the thing that's cheaper. And if it's cheaper for you to prosecute a war because of the value you get out of it, and you have the ability to do it, it becomes a very compelling and thing that you might want to do. Um, whereas conflict resolution, you know, dialogue, negotiation, et cetera, like, like the question says, takes a lot of energy and time. And the cost of war has to be high for conflict resolution to be the better option, unless people have like a moral belief about it. The problem is not many peoples on earth have an actual moral belief about um, preferring negotiation to to a fight if a fight is cheaper. Um, the problem, of course, with war, you know, it's 
once you start it, it can go out of hand. And so it can become way more expensive <laughs> in the long run, but you don't know that when you start. And sometimes it is the cheaper option. Um, so the only thing we can do is basically um, criticize, a attack, and have our politicians be more vocal about when people choose war over conflict resolution. Because again, the people choosing it have a utility to it. Yeah, I see. Thank you uh, once again for the perfect answer. Uh, and I can any more questions in the question box uh, and also in the comment section. If you have further questions, please do ask. And again, for those who joined us, um, this was Bright Garden Voices Garden Chat number three with Timur Nersesov. If you have missed uh, the previous uh, parts of the uh, chat, uh, please don't worry because it is recorded and it will be posted on our Instagram page. And uh, it seems that there are no questions. So once again, Timur, uh, thank you very much. Thank you immensely for joining us. Thank you for your time and such a great dialogue. I really enjoyed it, um, listening to you, to your answers. Uh, it was informative for me as well. And I hope also it was informative and interesting to listen to for our guests. And thanks for those who joined us. And uh, we would be very pleased to see you in our next garden chats and meetings. And hopefully you will, it is not our last dialogue with you today. Hopefully we will also meet in future. So thank you once again. Thank you, Leila. This was wonderful. Thank you. Uh, and thank you all. Have a great rest of your day. Goodbye. Take care.